Romans chapter 8, we reached verse 17, where Paul has been talking about now our place as sons and daughters, the work of the Spirit in our lives, making us sons and daughters, witnessing to us of that very fact that we are the children of God. And then he begins a transition in 17 again, where he says, if children, then heirs, heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And Paul is now tying this life of a son or daughter of God that lives in the spirit to also the reality of suffering we face here. And we share in that with Jesus Christ as he faced here, because this is not yet heaven and the life of God is not yet accepted in this world. It is not looked upon fondly. Uh, if we were perfect, we would be crucified like him. So the reality is there's a piece of that that we all share in, but it also ties us to the fact that we have an inheritance. We are really meant for something else. Again, Second Thessalonians chapter 1, Paul would say to those believers, we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all your persecutions and tribulations that you endure, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you also suffer. There's a reality where we recognize part of the suffering we face in this life and in this world ties us to the next world. But Paul follows that quickly with the truth, lest that is something discouraging in verse 18, where he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. Paul wants them to know that the reality of the glory that shall be revealed is always greater than the suffering that we face here. This is, uh, again, not heaven, but if we're saved, this is as close as hell do we get. This is our hell on the way to heaven. Jesus Christ has put us in that wonderful position, but the Bible recognizes there is still suffering. Uh, he is going to talk here, Paul, about that. He says, I consider... That could be translated, I am firmly convinced when he talks about his sufferings. He's saying, I've weighed these things out. Paul's taken a scale, in essence, and said, I, here are the sufferings that are real, and I've put the, those weights on one side, and now I take the glory that shall be revealed, and I place that on the other side, and I, I've considered, I've firmly considered this. And he speaks, certainly we all know, as a person who has faced suffering. Paul is not talking as a person that has not faced suffering or has faced only a little bit of suffering in life. In fact, the Bible tells us that Paul was a literal example of suffering for the entire church, that it was part of God's unique call in his life to suffer so that the grace of God and the strength of God could be made manifest in his life. And people could look at him and say, wow, if that guy can suffer for Christ in that way, I can face suffering too in my calling. 
God would literally say in Acts 9, I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. Somewhere God had a conversation with Paul and showed him ahead of time that this was some type of unique calling in his life. That's why Paul could say to the Colossians, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ for the sake of his body, which is the church. It's a strange verse with Paul saying, God has called me to, in essence, in my body, what people haven't seen in Christ's body and his resurrection, show the sufferings of Christ for the church to be a blessing to them, to be an example of God's power in a unique way. Certainly, if you read, we know uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul goes through a list of all these things that he has suffered. And you, can, you read that and you get depressed. You're like, this is, you know, why does this guy follow God at all? Well, again, there is, we're not all supposed to go through those things. But, but there was something unique happening in Paul's life where the reality of God and the kingdom of God and the promises of God and the grace of God were so much weightier in Paul's life that even all the suffering he was called to seemed like nothing on the other side of the scale. And, and Christians then and still now are supposed to look at Paul's life and say, you know what, Lord? And that's true for me, too, where I am. We all, we all have our share of suffering in this life. We don't escape it. You know, when an individual asks me, why does this have to be my portion? I could never say those things. I don't know exactly why we each have our particular things that we go through or why that has to be my version of things. Only, the only thing I know is what the Lord says through Paul that he's put us all in the best place in this world and the best time in this world that we can find our way toward him. That's what he says. And really, if God asked me, do you, if, if God came to any of us and was like, well, would you like this type of suffering or this type of suffering? I, I wouldn't know what to pick. How can I, how, I don't know what I'm going to survive through or what the grace of God's going to look like. I, we have to leave those things in his hand anyway. And we're all going to face our share. I believe the difference between Paul and us was not the suffering in the end in and of itself. As if he was just really tough or unique. I think the difference between Paul and us is his view of the end. Of the glory on the other side. We all kind of know something about suffering. But I think we lack in our knowledge of the glory that shall be revealed in us. The hope, the weight of those other things. We desire the promises of God and really we know very little about them. What we should know about them. In a way that they should be the proper weight. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Weight of Glory. Again, The Weight of Glory was just one address within the book. It's a remarkable address. I think it is worth the price of the whole book. You should get it. But he said this. This is a pretty famous quote. The New Testament has lots to say about self-denial, not about self-denial as an end in itself, 
We are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire. If there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and earnestly to hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that this notion has crept in from Kant and the Stoics and is no part of the Christian faith. Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a vacation at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. God in his word never promises the Christian life is going to be easy. There are plenty of people who throw that out there. We know health and wealth, different name it, claim it, doctrines. There are plenty of versions of those things out there that appeal to people because everybody wants a good life. They want the best things to happen to them. They want things to get better. Nobody wants to face suffering. But we all do at some point. And that's why the message can become confusing. What the Bible promises is very clear, that those that follow him and obey him, it's going to be worth it. That's what the Bible promises. To sum it all up, it's not that it's going to be easy, it's that it's going to be worth it. That in the end, I will not be ashamed that I made the choice to follow him and obey him. That even if the direction is difficult, that I will not look back and say, I should not have gone that way. You could probably ask the disciples, was it easy to follow Jesus? And in many ways, they would say no, to be honest. But if you ask them, was it worth it? They would almost laugh at you. What do you mean, was it worth it? In fact... If you would have asked the disciples, as they were bumbling around after Jesus, do you imagine what type of reward God has for you? They would have said all types of things, I'm sure. They wanted the right and left hand in his kingdom. They had all types of ideas. But they had no clue God was going to write their names in foundation stones in the city of the New Jerusalem. That their reward was way better than anything they could have picked out. You see, what God gives us in this life is he gives us joy. There's peace. He scatters these beautiful things through our path here. But he knows we're just pilgrims, so he never lets us settle down so much that we forget this isn't home. He's good. He's gracious. But we face suffering here, and the Bible acknowledges that. And every Christian's going to face that suffering. And the message is not that God's going to cause you to escape all the suffering if he loves you. The message is, whatever you find in the path of obedience after him, he'll be there with you. He'll give you grace. But just know this, it's going to be worth it. 
And when you look back and you have to consider and weigh it out and say, are the sufferings of this present time worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us? The answer is no. The glory is way, way heavier. Paul's uh, own description of that in the end from 2 Corinthians verse 4, our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. God acknowledges suffering, but he also acknowledges reward and glory. And because he's the truth, he acknowledges that the glory is way greater than the suffering. He, he tells us the truth. And he should know he came from glory. And when he looked at human beings, he said, let me tell you something. Lay up for yourselves treasure in heaven. Don't lay up for yourselves treasure on earth or moth and rust corrupts where thieves can break in and steal. Lay out for yourselves treasure in heaven where none of those things can happen. The person on earth lays out for themselves treasures here, and every single day they are leaving their treasures behind. The pilgrim on the way to heaven is sending their treasures ahead. Every day we're mailing some boxes ahead. I'm heading toward my treasure. Every day it's like a ship I load up with freight. I send it into eternity. The Lord's there on the other side. He says, that stays, that stays, that stays. That's got to go. That can come here, right? That, that can stay. That's going to that's gonna be here when he arrives. And the sum of it is that the suffering's true, but the glory's greater. The weight is heavier. We might not feel it at the moment. We not, might not think about it. God's promise is that it's going to be worth it. And any biblical answer to suffering that does not include heaven and eternal glory and reward is not a Christian answer. Because this is what the Bible says over and over and over again in relation to our suffering and difficulty and hardship here on earth. That, that is the Bible answer. That heaven isn't just about comfort. It's also about compensation. And that what we're going to find there, what he has promised us, is way greater. So don't trade it in for the lesser. Don't envy sinners. Don't give in to what's temporal. Understand that this is but a little moment. We're, we're here in this little time, and then we're going to have eternity. Put your weight there. Allow that to weigh what it should in your heart and in your life. And Again, the context still, the work of the Spirit in us, our sanctification, if we don't have eternal things in their proper perspective, we will not be able to correctly weigh out how to deal with things in this earth, how to measure their worth, how to deal with our suffering. It's part of our sanctification to learn that the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. So I can't flee from that. I trust him and I accept that. Now Paul is going to build on that 
in a very unique way here. Verse 19, he'll say, for the earnest expectation of the creation, your Bible might say creature, the idea is creation, eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Paul reveals kind of two very interesting truths here. And in a wonderful way, he's going to show, hey, part of the suffering that we face in this life is real. But he ties together the bondage or the corruption that we deal with and creation deals with. He tells us that creation has an eager expectation that word for expectation in the Greek has the idea of like standing tiptoe and stretching out your neck to look for something. You're, you're eagerly looking for something coming in the distance. Creation is neck outstretched looking for something, and that is its own liberty, which will happen in the liberty of the sons of God. So nature, he says was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. The nature was bound to the curse, is under corruption. Nature is breaking down. When its caretaker, man, Adam, sinned, nature too fell under a curse and has been forced into the position of hopeful waiting. Nature is not in its original state. Paul is saying the state it's in now is very much like our lives. There are some wonderful things about nature, some wonderful things about the world around us. The Psalms pick it out. You can you can still learn, as Paul said, things about God's wisdom and his majesty through nature. But, you know, there's still something off with it. There's still corruption there. It's still breaking down in certain ways. And God cares about the creation. And he is saying here, Paul is saying, there, there's a tie between us and creation. Now, I'm not going to go crazy tree hugger here on you. Okay? There, we know there are abuses to this. But there is a real truth to the idea that there's a responsibility for us in the world that we live in. Because God's original intention, the way he blessed the creation, was by taking his highest creation, man, made in his own image and likeness, and giving its care to his highest creation, to man. That we were supposed to have dominion over the earth. Fill it up. Name the animals. He Tend the garden. There was a there was a tie. God loved everything that he made. It was all good. And he put what he made under the care of somebody made in his own image and likeness to care for it and watch over it. And sin came in and the caretaker and what was taken care of were both brought under corruption. Subjected to a curse. So God's heart is still for the things of the world that he's made, the good that was in them, and to see it in its fullness, both man and the rest of what man was over. So we're, 
we should have God's heart in those things. Through the Bible, we see some pretty amazing things. We know the story with Balaam. The angel says, if she had not turned aside from me, speaking of the donkey, surely I would have also killed you now and let her live. <laughs> God's not going to kill the donkey with Balaam. The donkey would have lived. You, you would have died. Proverbs 12.10 says, a righteous man regards the life of his animal. Care about your beasts. Some of you have beasts at home. Dogs and cats and fish and, right? We're not all farmers here, but you might have a beast in your house. Somebody listening might be a farmer. Righteous man, he regards the life of his animal. He, He recognizes it. He thinks about it. Jonah, at the end, God would say, should I not pity Nineveh, Nineveh, that great city, in which are more than 120,000 persons who cannot decide or discern between their right hand and their left, and much livestock? Interesting, right? God takes note of even the animals that would have been destroyed. Of course, Jesus, the clearest picture of this, said, are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. The language is actually even more beautiful. It's just apart from your father. Like God is there when every bird falls dead to the ground, dies in his presence. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. This is what the world gets wrong. You are of more value than many sparrows. God recognizes the value in a human life is greater than the value in an animal life. But there's still value there. And so the creation, Paul is saying, is eagerly waiting for us to be who God made us to be. Because when he comes, the ultimate man, and we come with him in our liberty, it too is going to find its liberty. It's going to be set free. It's going to be what God wants it to be. He said, the creation itself will be delivered from the bondage of corruption, verse 21, into the glorious liberty of the children of God. The creation, he says, is groaning to be set free, to be what God made it to be. Remarkable. Eagerly waiting for this. And we have no idea what it's like for creation to be outside of the bondage of corruption. We're just aware of what it's like now. The Bible says some pretty incredible things that make you wonder just what this new creation will really be like. Psalm 96 says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea roar in all its fullness, let the field be joyful in all that is in it. And all the trees of the woods will rejoice before the Lord, for he is coming. He is coming to judge the earth. Psalm 98 says, Let the sea roar in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills be joyful together before the Lord, for he is coming to judge the earth. I don't know what it means for the trees to rejoice or the rivers to clap their hands, but I'm willing to find out. It's going to be cool. Isaiah would say, speaking of the kingdom age, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the leopard and the young goat, the little child shall lead them, the nursing child shall play in the cobra's hole and put his hand in the viper's den. 
There aren't going to be little children or nursing children in the new heavens and new earth in the kingdom age. Little kids are going to be sticking their hand and pulling out cobras. Pretty, pretty remarkable. That's going to be different. Isaiah 30 says the earth will produce plentiful harvest. There'll be water streaming down every high mountain and every high hill, and the sun will shine seven times brighter. Interesting. There will be streams in the deserts and in the wastelands, and that they'll blossom and bloom. It says that showers of blessing will come down on everyone. Ezekiel 34, I really like this. And everyone will be safe enough to sleep in the wilderness and in the woods. I grew up like just in this area in Philadelphia. I didn't do much camping. I'm kind of scared to sleep out in the dark in the woods, like an animal's going to kill me or something. But it's pretty cool that when when he's ruling and reigning over nature, you you just go walk in the woods and go to bed somewhere. You're going to be all right. Ezekiel 47 says a river will pour out from that temple and cleanse the Dead Sea, bring plentiful fishing. The trees will produce fruit monthly. The sun's seven times brighter. The trees can receive that. The earth is going to produce harvest like it never has. But what will it be like for creation to be released? To be released from bondage. What will it be like for a human, the highest creation, to be released from the corruption? What, there's, there's so much there. Well, how, what does it mean that God can open the mouth of a donkey to speak? What does it mean when Jesus can talk to creation and just have it do what he wants it to do? Now, he's Jesus, yes, certainly. He was also a man whose crown hadn't fallen off his head yet, like Adam's. What, what does it mean when Jesus said, if these people didn't cry out, the rocks would cry out. What is it going to be for us when the original wonders of the world are back? What will our relationship with this creation be like? Let me tell you this. It's going to be cool enough that the sufferings we go through now are going to be like, it was worth it. You see, this is part of it. This is part of the weight that goes on the other side of the scale. The world I'm living in now isn't the only world I'm living in. I'm living in the world that's in bondage to corruption. And it's eagerly waiting for something to happen. It's eagerly waiting for you and I to get set free. Paul would call it again, if we look at these verses, he would say that the creation was sub- that it's waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, and it's also waiting for twenty one the glorious liberty of the children of God. That's how Paul describes it. Uh, we, I, I think, have another place here where this is an understated doctrine in Scripture. God is saying that one day, and Scripture teaches. God will put his sons and daughters on exhibition for his own glory. The Bible teaches that God wants the world to see what we really are as his sons and daughters. To be set free. 
Paul would say we rejoice in the hope of glory earlier in this passage. He would say in Colossians 3, 4, when Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We know these verses. Maybe we haven't thought of them in this context, though. 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2 say, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Beloved, now we are the children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. John says, what, is it, what does it mean that you and I are sons and daughters of God, as Paul has just been teaching here? He says, it has not yet been revealed what that means. But it will be one day. The world didn't know him when he was here like us. But when he comes back, the world's going to know who he is. Every tongue is going to confess and every knee is going to bow. He is going to come in his glory then. And it says, when he appears, we shall be like him in glory. The glory is way weightier than the sufferings that we face. It is something that's yet going to happen, and it all matters very much. It's part of the eternal weight of glory Paul is putting on the other side of the scale, and we have to feel this weight. This has to mean something in our lives. Is it true, or is it just a wild fairy tale? Or is it the wild, incredible, almost inescapable truth. It is true. And since it's true, it should determine the way we live. I mean, the fundamental thing we already believe is that a human being got out of the grave and was resurrected and walked around on this earth in a resurrected body. We already believe that. Shouldn't be hard to believe that it's going to happen to us too. Because he promises that's what's going to happen. Again, C.S. Lewis would say in that same article, The Weight of Glory, he says, Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is Monday morning, or Thursday for us. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we're invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him is, of course, the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in speculations upon which I have been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load, the weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid on my back, a load so heavy that only humility can carry it, and the backs of the proud will be broken. It's a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. 
all day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It matters very much. It's not just a wild fairy tale. We're going to step into a glorious liberty where people are going to step into life outside of that glorious liberty. We're going to be, like he said, like a world of gods and goddesses in the sense that we're going to be brought into the glory of God, reflect it, share in it in some incredible way, or be placed outside of it. And if it's real, that should matter for us. It should matter for the people around us. It should matter for those we love. And it should matter how we see ourselves. What does it matter if we're overlooked or unknown or disdained in this world? Who we are, who we truly are, is only going to be known then. When God puts me on exhibition as his son. When I come back with him in his glory. When it is revealed who I actually am in this world as a child of God. See, Satan's done a whole lot to keep our focus earthly and shallow. We all do it, but we get worried about what people think of us, gray hairs, wrinkles, weird skin blotches, whatever it is, right? Worried about these little things in this life when very shortly we're going to be seen in power and in glory. This is so temporary. Yeah, how many are looking at themselves in this shallow manner? I mean, every stat in the world says eating disorders, self-harm, suicidal thoughts, just overly body consciousness. It's just out there 24-7. How many are focused on their present image the Bible tells us it doesn't yet appear what you are. I don't need to make myself known or seen. God's going to do that for me one day in the right way, in a way that will glorify him. What we have now is corrupt. But soon we're going to have a new body. And it will be known and recognized as incorruptible, heavenly, immortal, and powerful. Paul tells us, does that matter to you? Is that true? You might not like being forced to rest on that hope. But remember, Jesus never asks us to do anything that he hasn't already set the example in. We have no idea. We're going to celebrate it, but we have no idea what it was for him to come and take on a human frame. 
what it was for him to leave the glory and to enter into our world. He, who should have been recognized for who he was, walked around here on this earth not recognized for who he was. He was the one who was actually truly overlooked. He was the one who was actually truly disdained in a wrong way. In fact, the Bible tells us that there was no beauty in him that we should desire him. Wouldn't have a popular Instagram account. In fact, our shallow kind of American view of things, we probably would have called him an ugly individual if we noticed him at all in the crowd. No beauty in him that we should desire him while he was here, except now he's glorified with a name above every name. And he's going to return one day, and fittingly, every eye is going to be on him. And the reality is, he's our only hope. There, there is no actual other hope with this bondage of corruption. And for everybody who's struggling, physical, mental, handicap, difficulty, wondering why they might be the way that they are, crippled, blind, mentally impaired to some degree. If you're a son or daughter of God, you are yet to be revealed. It's going to happen. It does not yet show who you are. The world does not know us like it didn't know him. But the Bible teaches the day is coming. How many are struggling with the effects of sin in their bodies here? drug abuse, alcohol abuse. How many now a growing number of people struggling with the harmful effects of transgender surgeries, experimental hormones, right? looking at bodies, wondering what's my hope? I made this choice. I can't do anything differently. There's still a hope in Jesus Christ. Outside of him, there is no hope. In him, there's still hope. All of us are facing the corrupting realities of sin and death. The outer man is perishing, the Bible tells us. But the inner man can be renewed day by day. And this truth gives us one of the greatest weights to place on the other side of scales in life. Of the sufferings and the burdens that we face in corruption. And... We recognize God's not ripping anybody off. He's not letting me down. It's something we're headed to as sons and daughters of God. It's a hope that we have. And it's what he did for us. And he asks us to do the same for him, to follow him. He doesn't say go not having done it. He, he went way further than us. And he asks us as his sons and daughters to express a portion of that type of life. And he gives us the grace to do it. And when we do it, what we're going to see on the other side is it's not even a comparison. It was so incredibly worth it. What are all of these sufferings, any form of them, going to be? When you are day one 
fresh in your immortality? What, what are they going to look like from there? That's what Paul is saying. No more corruption. You must put on incorruption. You must be glorious. You must have a truly heavenly body, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. One that lives in power. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, As we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Paul says that there's a reason the creation is standing tiptoed with stretched out neck, waiting for the revealing of the sons of God, waiting for the glorious liberty of the children of God. So we're going to be set free to be who he has made us to be, wants us to be. So in 22, he says, we know the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs until now. The creation is groaning until now, until now means what he's speaking of still hasn't happened yet. It's future, still in this time. There's still these birth pangs, which are a picture of something coming, something new that is about to be born, not death pangs, birth pangs. And we too groan, verse 23. The creation's groaning, and not only that, we also who have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of the body. The creation is groaning, and we're doing the same. We are still there in that point of not fully there yet. We're waiting for our fullness of adoption. We've received, he says, the first fruits of the Spirit. You notice that. But we're still in a world where things are difficult, and we groan. And we probably shouldn't try to escape that because it's the right response. It's what Jesus did in this life. Uh, Satan will, I think, tempt us to put our heads in the sand to not look at the reality of the world or think about it, to distract ourselves, entertain ourselves, or try to make our home here instead, which is easier when you live in a prosperous society. But that's not what we're supposed to do. We've been given the first fruits of the Spirit. And we groan for, notice what he says, the redemption of our body when our adoption is complete. You see, the father has adopted us. His son has redeemed us as our second Adam and brother. And the spirit gives us life and witness and hope. We're not left in this world with suffering alone. Right? God has surrounded us. The father's adopted us. The Son has made us co-heirs with himself, redeemed us. The Holy Spirit is witnessing these things to our hearts, to our lives, inspiring them through Paul so that we can have them. And at the redemption of our bodies, we're going to have full sanctification. The presence of sin gone from inside of us. It's what we're groaning for. And what we groan for is life. It's not just this life. It is eternal life, the beginning of what he's given us in his spirit. We begin to taste the good things that God has for us here. 
we begin to taste the beginnings of what we're ultimately meant for in all the simplest things in this life, in the beauty of the world around us, in the fellowship with other people, in our relationship with the Lord, a million other blessings that are still good in his sight. They're all the beginnings of something more. The first fruits, even in a world of corruption. Again, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, we who are in this tent groan being burdened, not because we want to be unclothed, but further clothed. I love this phrase, that mortality may be swallowed up by life. Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. That mortality might be swallowed up with life. You are not hoping that your mortality will be swallowed up in death. That's the only hope of people outside of Jesus. In Jesus Christ, I'm hoping my mortality is swallowed up in life. That what I've begun to live is not yet the fullness. It's just the beginning of something that is still going to be set free. What will it be like to be revealed? To have our mortality swallowed up by life. You know, we just sang a worship song. Our hearts will cry. Our bones will sing. I like that little phrase there. Our bones will sing. Because it it pictures something inside of us. You see a little kid and they're just so much energy. They're just trying to burn energy. And you can remember what it was like in those days, right? Just the just strength and like the the pressing to use the strength. How can I just use this up? What will it be like when you're given the strength you're supposed to have? It's gonna be something like your bones singing. Because they're gonna be strong the way God wanted them to be. And when they are. What is my headache going to look like from then? <laughs> what, what is the difficulty or the hardship here going to look like from that point? You know, I just, it's hard to picture. It's just, to me, it's something like that ecstasy of when you're a kid and you're le- running out of the school building into the summer on the last day of school, right? <laughs> For kids, no offense to the teachers and teachers too. When you're a kid, you don't realize the teachers are probably actually happier than the kids that summer's there. Just, except we have the actual eternal summer that we get to run into. Just ready to burn that life, except that it's eternal. No end. The revealing of what we are in him. A glory in the strength that God has given And you know what? That blesses him because he did it. He wants it. He's going to make sure that it happens. Enoch prophesied, behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. Going to be there. Jesus warned in Mark 8, 38, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the son of man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels. Why would, that's the whole point. Why would I be ashamed of him here in that moment? What crowd do I want to be a part of? 
Who do I want to be in with in that moment? The king of kings? When reality spills into this world and the dream fades away? Whose side do I want to be on? Paul tells us in the end what it's going to look like to be revealed as sons and daughters of God. Not worthy to be compared with the sufferings of this time. That's what he tells us. So he says, 24, For we were saved in this hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one still hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we eagerly wait for it with perseverance. Paul says we're saved, the, the idea is into a state of hope. Our salvation, the moment we were saved, we don't realize all of it in that instant. All of us can tell the moment probably or a time where we were born again. We put our trust in the Lord. We know we're God's children. But we're still not yet revealed. We're, we're saved into a state where we have the first fruits of the Spirit. And now we hope. We have to wait. We're in a state of God has given me this gift, but salvation has multiple packages. Right? I, I've opened this wonderful one, and there's another one still coming. And really, they're going to run through eternity. We have yet to understand just what he's done for us. And as strangers and pilgrims, unrevealed strangers and pilgrims yet, unknown by the world around us, there's still this hope that we're waiting for. And we're saved into a state of hope. We do not yet, Paul says, see it. If we saw it, it wouldn't be hope. If, if we were there, if we were revealed, that wouldn't be what we're hoping for. It's something yet still to come. There's something ahead of us. Again, Israel was saved from the angel of death in the Passover, but that was not yet their hope. They were saved from the power of Egypt at the Red Sea. That was not yet their hope. Their ultimate hope was where God was bringing them. There was still something, even after their moment of salvation, per se, at the Passover, and their moment of sanctification, per se, at the Red Sea, that they were looking forward to. And you and I, we haven't yet seen fully what we hope in, except our hope is sure and steadfast. We look not at the things, Paul said, that are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things that are seen are temporal. Seems like this is the reality, but this is the dream. We all know that truth. You can experience anger in dreams. You can experience joy in dreams. You can experience fear in dreams. You can have real experience in dreams. But what happens is you wake up and then you're in reality. And reality doesn't change. What the Bible says is, this is the dream. There, there's a greater reality that we're about to step into. And when we step into eternity, it doesn't change. That's, that's the greater reality. That's going to swallow up this world and the little hopes that people are walking around with just to have a good day, get the next hit, maybe hook up with somebody, make something of themselves, even like little dumb hopes. I hope I can get some more followers or 
put up a dumb video that goes viral, right? People are walking around with all types of hopes and they're all gonna fade. They're all temporal, they're all passing. The fashion of this world is gonna fade away. But there are hopes that we have are eternal. The hope that the Lord has given us, nothing's gonna change that. We can have other hopes in this life, but all those other little things, I can hope to be married, I could hope to serve the Lord in certain ways, I could hope to, you know, get this job or whatever. But we hold all those with an open hand. God can put them in or take them out. But this hope, this is more than prophetic speculation. I'm not just trying to work out details of timelines. This is something I'm supposed to be looking forward to, resting on allowing to have weight in my heart and life as I think about things, as I think about myself, as I think about the body I'm in, as I think about what it means to serve the Lord, as I think about how people look at me, as I think about the world that I live in. It should affect the way I pray. It should affect the way I face suffering. And think about it and deal with it. It's something that should cause me to desire to wait up to see him. It's the type of hope that will make me look forward to Jesus' return. You wait up for somebody you love. You don't just wait up because you have facts. It's the type of hope that causes us to look for Jesus Christ and to trust him when we find difficulty here. The commentator Scroggy in his commentary said, we ask for strength that we might achieve and we're made weak that we might obey. We ask for health that we might do greater things and we're given infirmity that we might do better things. We ask for power that we might have the praise of men. We're given weakness that we might feel our need for God. We ask for all things that we might enjoy life and we're given life that we might enjoy all things. It may be that we receive little of what we ask for, and yet we may receive all that we hope for. God just looks at things so differently. He's trying to teach us that there's different scales. And every time he talks about hope, this is the context. Biblical hope, the context is always the personal return of Jesus Christ, the personal resurrection of our bodies, and the glory and reward of eternity. That's our hope over and over and over again in the scripture. Always the context of it. And groaning souls in this world, because we have them, who face difficulty and hardship, what we remember is we're not heading away from our treasure. We're heading toward it. And whatever I'm facing, I remain obedient to him and I'm faithful because it's going to be worth it. That's the promise. It doesn't say it's always going to be easy because it's not. God says it's going to be worth it. Oh, there's suffering. And we all are familiar with that. But what God's trying to tell us is there's reward and we need to be more f- familiar with that. There's glory and we need to be more familiar with that. 
And once we are, it's going to totally change the way we weigh any of the suffering. Isaiah would say this. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. The rebuke of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. And it will be said in that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, and he will save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. We will be glad and rejoice in his salvation. That's what we're doing here. Amen? Let's stand and let's pray. Lord Jesus, what incredible things you've given us in your word. There's no human being that could write a better story. And we believe, Lord, one day, because of your faithfulness, we're going to step in in the middle of it. And we're going to enjoy it together. We're probably all going to laugh about how I did a weak job trying to explain it. But we're going to be blessed in it. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us that type of hope. That you would allow it to weigh what is supposed to weigh in our hearts and our lives. Until we come to the day where our very bones can sing to honor you. And you reveal us as you would have us to be. And we give you all the praise and all the glory and all the honor. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.